Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. Police terrified a UFO responds to their signals. Dr. Phil sexually attacked me. Tom's secret gay life. Whitney Houston, the last photos. Well, sex, drugs, and UFOs all made the National Enquirer one of the most successful newspapers in our history. At one time, 20 million people read it every week. And it's the subject of a brand new and enormously entertaining documentary called Scandalous, the untold story of the National Enquirer. Now, the film is uh, filled with the juiciest stories about how the Enquirer got all of their juicy stories. But as news broads, what really intrigued us most is the profound influence the Enquirer has had on not only mainstream media today, but on our very culture itself. We welcome filmmaker Mark Landsman. Thank you, Mark, for joining us from uh, what I hear is a recent UFO landing in Los Angeles. <laughs> exactly. That's right, yes. All kidding aside, tell us, what, what is the, the story about the National Enquirer? Why was it important to share? You know, I think it was important to share because I, like so many of us, uh, experienced a uh, what I'd say is sort of a profound sense of vertigo when I would go to the supermarket in 2015 and early 2016 and uh, would find just all of these headlines screaming at me uh, off the pages of the National Enquirer and other supermarket tablets, but mostly the Enquirer, uh, talking about uh, one candidate for president, um, you know, near-death experiences on a regular basis, uh, Apparently, she had six months to live, uh, was very surprised to find out she had a nasty drug habit and that she was heading for jail, while the other uh, candidate um, was being touted as uh, pretty much the messiah and, um, you know, the answer to all to all of our societal ills. So that really made me uncomfortable. So and when you started out on this venture, how did you proceed? And, and what was it that really took you into the story? Where I, I'm sure because we've seen it all now on on film. There are many yeah. surprises here. Yeah, I mean, so, so the story kind of then found me I mean, once once it sort of hit me on a you know, I was never an Inquirer reader. I never it was never really of interest to me. And it really only started to become interesting to me when I saw what it was doing from a propaganda standpoint in in the in the campaign, but it really became very interesting to me when a family friend invited us for dinner in 2017. She said, "Hey, my dad's coming to town from Florida. He's a really fun storyteller, a great rock tour. Come have dinner." So we did, and over that dinner, this man named Malcolm Balfour, um, he just regales us with all these stories of his former career as a reporter and an editor at the National Enquirer back in the 70s. And that just blew our minds. I mean, he was telling us all kinds of stories of espionage and disguises and bribery and tons of cash and all this glamorous travel and um, all kinds of activities that would not pass in, in, in any journalistic muster whatsoever. It actually started with the mob. Yeah. The other thing is catch and kill. You you mentioned that when that came up as a subject uh, in Ronan Farrow's book just recently, that also really got you going. 
It did. I mean, of course, I mean, we were already, uh, we were, fil- my producer, Jennifer Ashrudik and I, we were already on the ground filming when Catch and Kill, when that story broke in The New Yorker. Um, so the first uh, Ronan Farrow story broke in uh, February of 2018. That was the Karen McDougal story. And then the Doorman and the Stormy Daniel story followed in April of that month. And we had already begun our filming. So the timing was kind of strange. We were already out there before Catch and Kill was even being talked about. Right. And, and we're going to get to how Catch and Kill is really something that the Inquirer started, um, yeah. if you will. Um it all started in an interesting way with a guy very few Americans have heard of, Generoso Pope Jr. Um, and a little loan he got from somebody who is his godfather, for real? Yeah, for real. Yeah, <laughs> for real. Um, yeah, so Jennifer, Generoso Pope was uh, a phenomenal American figure, just an epic character, Um you could sort of compare it to uh, Don Corleone, except that Generoso Pope was not in the mob. But his father was Generoso Pope Sr., and he was the publisher of Il Progresso. And that was a hugely influential Italian-American weekly. It was the largest Italian-American weekly in the country. He would also was the owner of a, of a scent a cement and sand company in New York City that poured Perfect the foundations. <laughs> yeah, of course. Go this figure. Is what, Go figure. This is what hey, are made I of. Say it. I didn't say it. <laughs> but he basically poured the foundations for Rockefeller Center and Radio City Music Hall. So, you know, very influential guy. Um, but he, once he died, his son was on the outs with the family. And so, like you said, he, he needed to do something. He needed to find something to do. And his godfather at the time was a man named Frank Costello, who was the head of a very powerful crime family? He in New was York. one. Yeah, he was the godfather. He was. Point. He was the big guy. Yeah, he was the godfather, and he gave him seventy-five thousand dollars in a quote-unquote loan, which she never had to pay back. Um, and that was the that was the start of the inquirer. That's how it got started. So he took it though to another level, General. He was an eccentric guy. Uh, yeah. you go into in the movie, but he <laughs> took it. He was a genius, and he had two really big things that he kind of invented which made the inquirer the inquirer totally absolutely yeah i mean he fascinating guy general pope jr i mean he had been in the cia briefly allegedly had studied psychological warfare he had graduated with an engineering degree in mit when he was a teenager uh and more than anything he had this really uncanny understanding of the american mind not sure how he did because he grew up extremely wealthy and went to Horace Mann and was a you know a child of privilege was driven around Manhattan in limousines but somehow he he they, they used to say that he would talk to his barber and from whatever his barber said that's what he would put in the inquirer so yeah so he really understood the common man and he started to create stories that would cater to what well really what the common woman was interested well, in talking I, and about. And I love that, that they talk about in the film, this Missy Smith in Kansas City was their, you know, target person. And Very I think powerful, what's so yeah. interesting about that is, as I used to work um, at Fox News Channel, we were, I was actually in a, in a meeting with Bill Shine, and he gave me the, you know, we're not here for the people on the coasts, we're, we're to cater to the middle of the country. And I think that was yeah. something that Pope understood long before. That's right. Yeah, that's extreme. That's really that's that's really right. I mean, he he identified this woman as Missy Smith in Kansas City. She was the typical Inquirer reader. He knew 
everything about her from a marketing standpoint. It was quite fascinating. I mean, this is like, this is, you know, he didn't even do, have to do a whole lot of market research. He just understood who she was, how many kids she had, what kind of, what kind of home she lived in, what her husband did for a living and but more was, than anything. Yeah. yeah. What she, what, what she was most interested in gossiping about with her girlfriend. And gossip, was, I think was the, the operative term. The other yeah. thing that I think really is what made it is his underststanding that at that point in time, there were the the problems right. going the on. There was Watergate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And right. and he knew people wanted an alternative, more entertaining way to go. But his yeah. real genius, I think, was when he put it in the supermarkets. That was unheard of. Yeah. I mean, w- what was really fascinating is when the Inquirer, so it starts out as this very irrelevant rag in New York. It's got a circulation of like 17,000 and it's irrelevant. And of course, being the son of this sort of giant publisher, he had big shoes to fill. So he has to figure out a way to boost circulation. And that's when he decides to slap all these gory images of car crashes and crime on the front pages of the Inquirer with these ridiculous headlines that were really violent and and really graphic. Yeah, and he Um, had his reporters do things that um, what they called spy activity in the way of getting the story. I mean, going in and getting, um, for instance, Elvis in the coffin. These are things that have been done before in so-called journalism around the turn of the century, but he took it to a whole new level. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way that he took it to a whole new level is that he just, he had so much money and he just threw it at this paper. So like the Inquirer reporters used to get chastised for coming back and not spending a lot of money. He, he would say, if you didn't spend a lot of money, that meant that you didn't go to get, you weren't obviously going to the ends of the earth to get your story. And that's what he wanted. Right, and um, he, so he, I, you were saying about the gore. Um, right. I believe, and with the brilliance of him was putting it in the supermarkets, but he also, that didn't sell in papers, right? So how did he kind of, how did he move forward from that? Well, I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you reconnected that. So basically the gore obviously was not going to cut it at the AMP or the Safeway or the Jewel or the Osco. You didn't want blood, you don't want to look at blood on the newspapers while you were checking out your steak. (laughs) While you're standing there with your your macaroni and cheese or when you just want some TV dinner. Um, Precisely. So he had to, in order to break into the supermarkets, the whole reason why he wanted to go to the supermarkets is that, you know, if you, you know, if you if you recall, basically in the late '60s, there's this mass there's this mass migration out of the urban centers, and everyone, a lot of people are moving to the suburbs, and with that dies the classic American newsstand. So the Inquirer used to sell on street corners in New York City and all these urban centers, but those those started dying out, and so Pope and his team of people had to figure out where his captive audience was and that's when he identified this one place where missy smith from kansas city and all of her friends go at least once if not twice a week that's the grocery store the supermarket yeah um and, but and then you the know Princess diana story happened and the oj story and things changed a bit correct yeah i mean but there's all before kinds that of happened yeah. though seriously before that happened they hired fleet street reporters they did checkbook journalism. They came up with all these methods that were unheard of before in, in journalism. Well, they weren't unheard of. They were being practiced freely in Britain, in England. So Fleet Street was the epicenter of tabloid journalism in the world. It's where everything that we know and cringe at came from, you know, in terms of these tactics. I mean, the Fleet Street reporters were notorious for basically doing anything including slashing each other's tires, putting their foot, you know, like they, they used to call it door stomping, where they would knock on someone's door, 
and they would not stop knocking until someone answered. And then when they answered and tried to slam the door, they jammed their foot in the door and prevent them from shutting the door. These guys were ruthless, yeah. like super ruthless. And those are the guys that Pope recruited to uh, to make sort of the first generation of Inquirer reporters. And and they were, you know, they were like Rottweilers. Yeah, they yeah. got they got things done. And I mean, they talk about how you know that's just how it works. You know, being fed a quote. You know, yep. getting the people to say what they want to say, getting the picture. It was, it, you know, and, and I think they also found that um, people liked getting paid and they liked snitching because they got paid for it. Yeah. And they paid a lot. You know, I mean, that was the other thing. I mean, that that was the one thing that was just the the fundamental difference is that these guys paid sources freely and it was known that they paid sources. So, you know, they were they were doling out thousands and thousands of dollars to sources all around whatever celebrity they were interested in, in getting information on. And they would and they would really get in and embed pretty deeply, like at hospitals with, you know, people checking in people at hospitals, obviously hairstylists and maitre d's at all the restaurants in Hollywood and New York. Um, Did Bellman they like go through their mail and stuff? Went well, allegedly, yes. This government, according to, <laughs> I like the allegedly. I like allegedly. that. According, <laughs> according to one, you know, according to several Inquirer reporters, you know, envelopes were steamed open and resealed. Um, you know, my favorite we your... story, my favorite story, Mark, and sorry to interrupt, but is, no, is how they got the Belushi woman to to John yeah. Belushi when he overdosed. They got the woman who was his, I guess, his friend, yeah. but also his dealer, to admit, yeah. And, and, I mean, that was a that that was that's a definitely a low point in the film when I mean, just in terms of sort of how low can you lower the bar of, of ethical standards when you're pursuing a story. Yeah. And that, that 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 was a really, uh, you know, frankly, a really, uh, you know, there was there was very little journalistic integrity. In, right. in, but in but it helped them. It put them on the map. And that's and that kind of went down this wild ride of it did. Cosby it did. And um, it did. You know, but I mean, these I mean, you guys are called news broads, right? So these are the Faustian bargains that these particular news gatherers made. I mean, I don't think you made those bargains at The New York Times, particularly or wherever you, you know, or even yeah. that journalistic other, integrity. Uh, uh, Sure. Yeah, you know, you know, I think other places that hopefully were building themselves on a reputation of, of facts and a particular standard of practices. There were no standards of practices. The standards of practices for the journalists at the Inquirer were get the story at any cost. Don't come back until you have it. And if, you, if you're going to come back and not have it, you're out of a job. So, so, you know, they were always on, you know, their, their jobs were on the line all the time. They're, so, they're flashy jobs. Yeah, but, yeah, but the thing is, because of that, I think it was never taken seriously. I mean, it was, it was fun and everybody read right. it because it was entertaining, but nobody saw it as a legitimate journalistic enterprise. But then all of a sudden, the OJ trial comes along. And all well, I, sp- I, I, I want to be careful to, to, to about that, because I, I when you say no one took it seriously, that's that's actually not true. I think huh. that, 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 that there were a lot of people out there that thought that this was true. Like, you know, in the film, Mike Wallace interviews a bunch of women in the mid seventies in uh, a grocery store. And there's a woman in Yonkers and she says straight out, they can't print something in there. That's not true. And that was that, that is what is fascinating about this journey is that the inquirer was playing with people's understanding of credibility. And they were starting to sow the seeds of, of, you know, messing with that credibility. So people got, conf- people were genuinely confused, or you could say maybe we're not really particularly concerned with, you know, rigorously checking the facts in the Inquirer, but a lot of people thought that stuff was true. I guess what I meant to say then is that the journalistic community didn't, you know, saw them as a rag, but That's what, that absolutely. all of a sudden, and you know, the story, you could tell the story is, is great. And 
because they paid off so many people, they'd get some facts that other people didn't. And yeah. in the OJ trial, it, it was critical. I think the mainstream media went into the wheelhouse yeah. because they were yeah. already in place. They already had their people in place. And I find that that was, that was also why I think we as News Broad see that as a turning point as well. Definitely. I mean, I, I, I think everybody in the inquiry, particularly Steve Koss, who was the editor in chief at that time, he really looks at that moment when uh, mainstream journalism begins this fast slide, he says, into, tabloidism, into tab- tabloidism. And that's because suddenly you have this story that no, this paper that very few people took seriously that was, you know, talking about psychic phenomenon and another alien landing and all this kind of stuff and Liz Taylor's weight gain or weight loss. Suddenly the, it's, it's tackling real, quote unquote, real news. And you're getting people like the New York Times giving them credit for it, saying, you know, the the, uh, the inquirer should be required reading in the O.J. Simpson case. That had never happened before. And then David Pecker came along and took it over. Tell us what happened there. Well, that's a complete shift altogether. I mean, when he comes on board, it's um, it's a radical departure from the era of General Sopope, um, the era of Ian Calder, of Steve Kaz, you know, of, of all the people in the film. I mean, really, the film is essentially a before a before, a middle, and and then an after of what happens in Pecker being the after. And what happens under his era is that, um, you know, he reduces staff, he slashes budgets. Um, there is an effort to kind of elevate the content to make it a little bit more glossy. And um, none of that really meshed with the Inquirer's DNA. Um, but the other thing that happens under his watch is this practice of catch and kill, um, which is very, very different from the sort of celebrity trade-outs that they were doing in the earlier eras of the Inquirer. You've always had uh, information being brokered, gossip being brokered, like, you know, we know this about this celebrity, we know he's sleeping with the nanny, and we're not going to run the story of the nanny if you let us come and spend Thanksgiving with the family. We're Great. talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger, where they know about the nanny, correct? Well, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just using, I'm speaking, I'm speaking purely just, you know, anecdote you know just i'm not speaking i'm not i'm not linking the nanny to a particular person i'm just saying in general that the way that it used to Those go the is deals that, that were made yeah the, these were the deals they were called trade-offs the inquirer had spies everywhere they knew who everyone was sleeping with they had photographs all that stuff i mean it's definitely a form of blackmail, blackmail. and they would approach the celebrity and the publicist and they would say we have this information on you um so give us something better and we won't run it right. and that's how it ran for years and years and years that's different than uh, getting the information and then maybe approaching, say, the nanny and saying, hey, um, we're going to we'd love to hear your story. You deserve to be your voice deserves to be told. In fact, you should have a book. Maybe, you know, we'll, we, you know, we're, we're going to get your story out there. So she very naively signs her rights away to that story. And then that story gets buried and never sees the light of day in order to protect someone with political aspirations or business aspirations or something like that. That's that's more new. And what really killed it in many people's opinion was just the fact that David Pecker and Donald Trump were bosom buddies and Pecker did everything he could um, to to make Trump's campaign work. He made him an editor. He made him an editor, yeah. Well, not literally. Not right, literally. Right, right, right. I mean, right, in, but, in a larger yeah, right. sense. Yeah, yeah. He was not on the payroll, yeah. right. right. Look, I mean, I mean, I think, I think that if we really want to look at, the, you, you know, the media has always had um, uh, intricate relationships with political 
candidates, right? And, you know, papers would make deals with the Kennedy administration to not run stories about JFK going up and down the, you know, the elevators at the Carlisle with various women. You know, there's always, there's always been, you know, people would not report on, you know, LBJ's um, illicit television deals, I believe, in Texas. There's all, there's all, there's always this kind of stuff. There's, I remember someone saying that um, the media was barred from ever showing photographs of LBJ and his uh, of J, um, FDR in his in his wheelchair. So there's always been there's always been a kind of um, strange bedfellows between politicians. And I mean, you know, you of course being the amazing journalist you are, you know that. But I think it's it's really shocking to see a supermarket tabloid with the kind of visibility that it had fully embracing and endorsing a political candidate with blatant propaganda and then blasting that same uh you know that same paper with a negative completely false information about the opposition candidates that we hadn't seen before that's the part that's particularly nefarious and you know you talk to certain people you know violating campaign finance finance um violations that leads right into Trump and um, sort of the end of of the newspaper itself, which um, I I kind of overall like to at least when I was watching your film, um, the the boiled frog syndrome came into my head, um, which um, I think most people are, are aware of. But but quickly, it's it, you know, boiled frog, you can't just throw into I'm sorry, a frog, you can't throw into boiling water. However, if you put it in tempered water and let the water come up, um, you can eventually boil the frog. And, and I think that when I when I kind of look through this, this history that you've laid out in this film, what I see is starting from, you know, this paper that was getting good stuff, um, maybe not the way that the Times was doing it, but they but they were they were they had a plan, they had stories into what you said, which was, I mean, hush payments and truly influencing the 2016 election. Yeah, you know, it's a, I, that that boiled frog analogy is is so uh, is so on the money. I mean, I think that we don't realize how powerful um, media impressions are. You know, you're you're walking through Times Square every day, or you're driving down the freeway. You pass that billboard every day, and you don't realize that there's a part of your brain that is receiving that message. I mean, I forget the number of the statistic, but it's an obscene amount of impressions that we get from the media every day. So if you think. Yeah, you think about the you think about the place that most Americans go to, without a doubt. You know, unless you're the kind of person who's just ordering your groceries online, which I'm not. You know, um, you're going to the you're going to the supermarket and you're standing in line with other Americans and you're just waiting there, and you're kind of a captive. You're kind of captive, right. and you know the the, the 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 one could say the genius of General Sopope is that he understood that piece of real estate would be valuable for the life of his company and beyond. And he was right because, you know, the, the, the messages that were on that billboard, you could say that the front pages of the Inquirer back in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, well, that was, it was celebrities and it was miracle cures, but you cut to 2015 and those are political posters you know, it's it's just pure political propaganda. So you're 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 and, and you're sitting there with your box of cereal or whatever. You're you may not even realize that it's making an impression on you, like the boiled frog. It's like, wow, it seems to be getting hotter in here. Is it getting hotter? But in I'll here? just adjust <laughs> because I'm used to seeing this every time I go through. The I'll just adjust. I guess, Mark, and suddenly you're what exploding. we found the most important about the film, and is the theory behind it. What is the legacy of the Inquirer? Why is it so important to where we are today? I'm anxious. Carl Bernstein said it's a bad time for journalism, not only for journalism, but for the truth. And is that where you were going here? 
Well, you know, look, I think that, um, I think hopefully we would all agree that um, either as a direct response or as a natural part of sort of where we're at in our, in, in our evolution, journalism is going through a really, really profound renaissance right now. There's some extraordinary reporting going on that rivals and maybe some people, Carl himself would even say, surpasses what's, what went on during Watergate. You know, particularly in, in print journalism and, and podcast journalism, really extraordinary work. Um, at the same time, you know, we talk about sort of what's the legacy of this inquirer, right? This, this, this print publication basically has the lowest circulation it's ever had in 60 years, right? Nobody's actually, very few people are going out and buying the inquirer. Their presence online is really unimpressive, right? So really, what's the legacy of this thing? And, and you know, for those of us who made the film, I think we, we've come to sort of think about this as, you know, the Inquirer now sort of exists in the form of a single human being who happens to sit in the most powerful office in the entire world. And the distribution outlet is no longer the printing press, it's Twitter. And there's no editor, there's no publisher, there's no, there's no hierarchy, there's no institute. It's just one person uh, and, and who is able to release a copy of his paper really every, every 10 seconds, if he so chooses. And that's really what the Inquirer has become. The Inquirer has become Twitter. And now you've got a single person being able to reach 60 million followers. The Inquirer in its heyday reached 20 million. So I think that's where we're, that's sort of the iteration of what well, it's become. You've wow. done it in the most incredible, attractive, and entertaining way. And we love the documentary, Scandalous. We're all going to look for it. And Mark Lansman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Really pleasure. Scandalous is in select theaters around the country until November 21st and available now on demand. Go to scandalousfilm.com for details. This has been the News Broads with Judy Licht, Lynn White, and Gina Cerrito. Special thanks to our producer, David Levin, and audio producer, Nick Ciavada.